enjoy your calmness, Mr. O'Neill. Enjoy. We are going. Yes. Power. has done more harm than good. Order in the back, order in the back. So, as I was about to say, we have quite the selection of speakers this evening. Uh, I am especially pleased to see the returns of Miss Christine Fleming, who I never miss an opportunity to embarrass by calling her out. Miss Fleming is one of the few members who still is attending meetings. I think the only one in the room tonight, yes, who has been here longer than myself. And uh, she actually hasn't given a speech in about three years. Three years. So this should be interesting. Um, so yes, we have just a few announcements to uh, get through this evening. I shall start us off with the conclusion in our AGM announcement series. Ah, can we keep that So the uh, over the past couple of weeks we have discussed the positions. Order, come on, folks, come on. I know I'm not standing in front. That's for usual, but let's uh, let's not. So yes, over the past couple of weeks we have discussed the positions of training officer, social officer, outreach officer, technology officer, uh, external and internal convener. So tonight we shall be discussing the executive, that being the treasurer, the current holder of which is Mr. John McDonald, gets away, there he is, uh, secretary, good done, and president, myself. President. Uh, all these other words I can't struggle to say. Um, so yes, a uh, quick note about the executive. Uh, due to uh, the dreadful rules imposed to, uh, upon us by our most loathed enemy, the Student Union. Uh, I mean, it's, Are you uh, sure about that? Sir? <laughs> yes, we'll get on that later. Um, yes, uh, if you want to stand to be a member of the executive next year, uh, you need to be a student at Queens, uh, and you need to be. Technically, we've had this confusion in the past. <laughs> Technically, um, you need to be a student at the time of your election. Not necessarily when you're in the post, but no, you do need to be both. Uh, so yes, only stand on if you're a student at both the time of your election and when you're in the post. With regards to the Treasury, uh, you're in charge of money, obviously. Uh, acquiring sponsorships, keeping track of what's going in and what's going out. And uh, just a, a pestering companies up and down the land to give us their money. Uh, anything in particular you'd like to add, John? Um, oh, yeah. So, dealing with the terrible, terrible system that is the top forms. Yes. The, the, the finance office is an archaic nightmare <laughs> that we dread dealing with. Uh, it is. 
Quite terrible. But don't let that put you off. It's really a wonderful job. Otherwise, we have Secretary. So, Secretary is uh, the Chief Administrative Officer of the Society. They are in charge of taking the minutes of the weekly debates, the minutes of the council meetings. They are in charge of writing the uh, agendas uh, for the council meetings, yes, and also they're meant to be in charge of the order papers, but I really love the order papers, so I have to do with papers this year. Also, emails, they have to write um, uh, the occasional email uh, to the mailing list. Uh, what else? Room bookings, they can be in charge of booking the rooms. Uh, Mr. John, you'd be a much better explainer of this than I. What else? Okay, I, I, I think you've given everything just to stand. So just to stand. Just to involve you together, um, I've had great fun being in the sector of things. Thank you for having for the past year. Just a plan, so. <laughs> so, yeah, um, minutes, minutes, minutes. That's right. The is, of course, the second most visible role in council after myself as they give the readings of the minutes every week. So, uh, I'm sure it's not an issue for you fine debaters, but don't. Uh, that's probably not the best to start the role if you're afraid of public speaking, I would say, because that would be quite the challenge. Or maybe, or maybe if you want to learn. I mean, I mean it's probably reading more than anything, so as long as you can read, I can. I'm not quite sure. Finally, finally, of course, is the role of president. I don't really know what I do. I do a lot. Um, what do you do? I don't really. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I could tell you. I mean, she, uh, no, no, I'm not even going to let you open that kind of words. I basically, uh, the president is primarily in charge of making sure that society doesn't burst into flames at any given point in time. Um, they have to ensure that basically everything happens. They have to make sure all the individual council members do their jobs on the occasions when they can't, such as sickness or other events they have to take over uh, and do the things themselves. Uh, yeah. Basically, they need to know how everything works and how to keep everything working. Uh, you've got to be able to stand from the room and keep people at least vaguely entertained or, as I've heard, mildly confused for an entire evening. <laughs> uh, and yeah, you've got to be able to yeah, be a friendly welcoming face to you miserable people out here. Um, <laughs> sorry, did I say that out loud? There are no uh, rules against uh, standing for the presidency without ever being on council. Uh, some other society committees uh, or yeah, societies would have a rule in their constitution that says you have to have a year experience. That doesn't exist in ours uh, because it generally isn't required. People who get in uh, always are you know, the people with the most experience. Certainly I never served on council so, and it worked out reasonably fine. Uh, but yes, oh, yeah. I said, I said I am qualified to avoid this exact situation. Uh, but here we are. But yes, so it's not really advised that you stand for president if you've never been on council. It's not really advised that you stand for president even if you haven't been on council, but you have been on another society committee because every society works in a very specific way. And like I said, uh, the president needs to know exactly how the society works and how to keep it working. We have weekly debates, uh, we have weekly kinds of meetings, we have a whole host of other events on every single week, and we've got to know how to do the stuff, basically to keep it all going. So yes, uh, now that everyone has been officially briefed on uh, all positions, it is my pleasure to announce that nominations are now open. Uh, to nominate uh, a, well, 
We're going to amend the Constitution in a couple of ways over the next couple of weeks, so I'm just trying to make sure I get this right. Um, it'll all, what I put up in the post on the literary firm in the next few days will be the exact rules, so this may not quite be uh, verbatim or gospel or whatnot, but anyway. Don't nominate yourself, really. Uh, you can, and we haven't previous years, but it's better to get someone to nominate you and then you need someone to second you. So you need to be nominated and seconded. Uh, you can nominate yourself, ideally just get someone else to do it. And you can't second yourself. Uh, you bah, 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 email info at literific.org. Again, this will go up, so don't worry, but info at literific.org. And uh, again, this template will go up. But you say something to the effect of, I you're nominator's, the nominator's name, do you hereby nominate the person? So let's say I, Matthew Bradley, do you hereby nominate Matthew Bryson for the position of uh, permanent president Uber Alice uh, for the, uh, the 170th session. Uh, I believe this nomination will be seconded by so-and-so. Yeah. Uh, whoever is seconding uh, needs to email in uh, as well. We no need to enforce um, being a student for nominating and seconding. There's no point for it. Uh, to be to vote, you're going to need to be a student. Uh, so we'll get on to that later. But make sure you don't lose your student card in the next couple of weeks. You need to be a member. You need to be a paid member to stand and to vote. And you cannot pay me if you haven't already. That's close as we've discussed. Um, otherwise, yeah, everyone who stands. Nominations will be open for two weeks. They'll close about a week before the AGM. At which point manifestos will go off. Again, manifestos we'll talk about later. They're short, don't worry about them. And yeah, I think that's about everything. Um, so, yes, info terrific, get emailing, get nominating. And I look very uh, much forward to seeing the potential competition, uh, composition of next year's pencil. Yes. So, everything else, yes, and the competition for next year's pencil. Uh, and don't forget, please do attend the AGM. It's Thursday, or Tuesday, 13th of March. And you know, democracy, and yeah. Stop that, guys. So, I will blitz through the rest of the announcements. Uh, so, we have a debate with Ulster University coming up yes. very shortly. Indeed. <laughs> uh, our, our token UU student over here, uh, you served Killian. Um, good job. Uh, so, yes, we have a debate with UU coming up. Uh, we're going to them for the first time, I believe. Uh, they were the only four them to come to us, but we decided to go to them this time. It's on their Coleraine campus, so council are kind of vaguely obligated to attend. So, <laughs> kind of vaguely, I know. Um, so yeah, we'll be working something out, probably taxis or a bus or train or something. If you're interested, say to anyone on council and we'll you know, figure out a way to get you there. The dip is March 5th, is it? Seven. Seven? Okay, that was another thing that isn't happening anymore. So, March 7th uh, in the afternoon, we have to be there for half two, so we're probably going to leave at what? It takes like two hours to get Two hours, so we need to leave at about midday. Uh, so, yes, the motion is this house rejects open borders. We're on the opposition. It should be very good. The UU debate is normally good fun. So, please, if you're interested, come along. Nice little day out. Um, be good fun. Uh, very importantly, very importantly indeed, the Dufferin competition is on the horizon. Do we know the exact date for that? Does anyone have a turn card handy? Someone can find it and I'll continue talking. So the Dufferin competition is the sister competition to the Godkin. Godkin is for best male speaker, Dufferin is for the speaker of the year. Uh, it is our most prestigious internal competition and award. Uh, there are spaces left on both sides. 
Uh, you, no one gets told the motion until 15 minutes beforehand. So everybody has a fairly equal shot. March 22nd. March 22nd. Thank you very much, Mr. Gardy. Uh, it's the penultimate debate, or it's the last one. We must do the last one, because it's after the conversation. So it's the last debate until, until, until the, the actual last one. So that's before you start. So yes, um, <laughs> the motion only gets released 15 minutes beforehand. So please, just sign up for that. Um, take, try your hand. There's spaces left on both propping up, but it doesn't really matter because you don't know the motion. So, yes, please just throw your hand in the ring, absolutely, just go for it. Um, otherwise, Conversazione, sign up, is now live. Conversazione, RIL Formal. The uh, link is conversazione2018.literific.com. I imagine most people don't really know how to spell Conversazione, because it's a silly Italian and or Latin word. Um, so, it's on the Literifrom, it's on the page, we'll republish it. But yes, please do come to the Conversazione. It's a, it is a great time. Uh, we have a bigger room than last time, an even fancier room, and we've brought the ticket price down for With its own bar. With its own bar. With its, like, with its own dark wood uh, panel bar. Um, so yes, it's, it's cheaper than last year, it's going to be bigger than last year. Uh, is this the formal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> the Conversazione is the formal. Um, it's an old university word for formal. Um, but yes, please come off that. Uh, the menu is on the sign-up form, so you can have a look at the menu there. We should probably just release that, it'd be good for people to dance that. And yeah, there's actually uh, tea and coffees included the price this year, unlike last year, and the price is lower than last year, so it's, it's better in just about every way. Uh, we don't know where the after party is going to be yet. There'll be a reception in here, and all the times are up on the sign-up form as well. It'll be from about, is it six till late, right? It starts at about five or six. So, it is a fantastic evening and a great way to cap off the year. Just a quick note, last Thursday evening, we, uh, it was our birthday and we went back to the Eggman time where we had a charity auction. Some of you may have heard about it on Facebook or heard about it in the previous weeks, but couldn't attend. It is my great pleasure to announce that by uh, the not-so-virtuous act of the council selling themselves uh, to the highest bidder, we raised a grand total of £348! Well done indeed to all those who uh, drove the price up. Looking at you, Mr. Doherty. Uh, that all goes towards our uh, selected charity for the year, Shelter NI. Or NI Shelter, one way or the other. You might have that. I mean, I give it to Rag and they deal with it, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, Shame. Uh, but yes, it's all good, very good, very good. Um, it's going to be in a couple of weeks. I'm a tad busy for the next couple of weeks, um, but it'll be soon and you'll all get to laugh at me and be hilarious, I'm sure. Lots of compromising pictures will be taken about. Um, <laughs> I have, I have, I have, I have <laughs> what was that? I have. Um, <laughs> so, sure. so finally, uh, just. Yep, yep, I could have sworn I had more, but. Oh, tomorrow. Two things, yes. Yes. So, uh, this is, we are flanked today on both sides by two very special competitions. Yesterday we had our annual schools comp, uh, it took place from about 10 in the morning until uh, about 4 in the afternoon. Uh, it was fantastically well attended, uh, it uh, had featured a fantastic uh, final lineup that was all female. Uh, it was very, very good to see. Uh, the winner was Bethany? Bethany? Uh, I don't remember the uh, names of the winners, but Matthew was the winning team. Jasmine. 
There we go. Uh, and yes, it was very, very good indeed. Fantastic work by Miss Carver O'Neill and by Miss Vetter. Sadly, Miss Carver O'Neill isn't here, but uh, I'm going to say posthumously because it's funny. Let's posthumously give uh, Miss Carver O'Neill a big round of applause. A tremendous job indeed, and we've made a new friend who's a counselor, so that's nice. Um, and yes, final announcement is a clarification on one from a couple of weeks ago. So, tomorrow night in the Riddle Hall, we are hosting the final of the biggest and most prestigious All Ireland Debating Competition, that being the Irish Times Debating Competition. Uh, it is the combination of weeks of work and what not. And it is sure to be a fantastic night. Now, I previously mentioned this a couple of times, including at the Reformation event, which took place in the Union Theological College. At that time, I was working uh, under information supplied through miscommunication. Horrifically phrased. Uh, but I mentioned that it was not open to the public. That's not quite true. There is a uh, reception and a dinner, which is invite only, and that's for all the you know, newspaper folks and whatnot. But the actual debate itself is open to everyone. Uh, it's black tie or as smart as you can arrange with you know 24 hours notice. Like I said, it's up the Riddle Hall, which is down Stranmills. Um, I'm sure all of you know the Stranmills Road. Just keep on walking, uh, and you'll get there eventually, or you'll walk into a lake. But yes, it would be fantastic to see as many of you there as possible. It's very, the last time it was here was five years ago. It almost certainly won't be here again for quite a few years, almost certainly again, whilst, not whilst we're still at Queen's. Uh, and most importantly, Mr. Russell Nairn is speaking in the final. Our first final uh, for uh, five years. It's at home turf. There's truly no better reason to attend. Uh, uh, so yes, please, please do come along if you can. And other than that, uh, all that remains for me to say is that to... There's one more thing, Mr. President. Oh, is there? And tomorrow at 12 o'clock, please. Oh, yes. Training workshop is tomorrow at 12. Uh, so there's a training workshop tomorrow at 12. Uh, is this... Kitty Hurst not back in the country, is she? Just, just you? Yeah. So, just going on later, our training officer is running a workshop tomorrow, uh, BP style refresher or intro refresher. Back, back to BP bit. Back to BP bit. <laughs> uh, so, the duffering uh, that I briefly mentioned is uh, done BP style, which is very similar to this. The main difference is that we call the speakers opening government and uh, opening opposition and whatnot. It's like uh, British parliamentary. And also, the motion is released until 15 minutes beforehand. But due to the nature of you not knowing the motion until right before it begins, that presents a unique set of challenges when writing and preparing your speech. So this workshop will prepare you for that. If you're interested in speaking to that friend, I urge you to go along. It's at 12? Yeah, 12, 12 in the SU. 12 in the SU. Uh, uh, yes, talking three and four. Say, uh, There'll be Jack Cakes. There'll be Jack Cakes. I can't always promise this. Please do go on for that. Uh, there aren't many training workshops left, I imagine, but there aren't many weeks left. So get the training in while you can. But again, all that remains for me now to say is to welcome to read the amounts of the 18th ordinary meeting our uh, splendiferous secretary, Mr. Peter The 18th ordinary meeting of the Literary and Scientific Society took place on the 15th of February 
when it was attended by 62 members. Unfortunately, the President had some bad news to share the House. The brilliant Reverend Paul Bailey, who guest chaired the blasting debate, had been involved in a car accident the President had been informed and thus be out of action for several months. He therefore extended the motion to the House to extend our sympathies. This was then passed the, the President then brought up a motion to the House to also give his sympathies to the family of Edmund Doherty, um, as his great uncle had passed away. This is also fascinating. The President then opened up the floor for private members' business, which he promised would be shorter than usual, as the meeting had started later than usual to ensure a sufficient amount of birthday cake consumption. <laughs> Mr. Morgan Hickman, standing on the table, which is obviously an attempt for the Secretary of the Law Society to lord over his poor literary thing, asked the House if, he would, if it would support a return to direct rule. President Emeritus, Mr. Benjamin Murphy, was the first to comment. He said that he didn't mind particularly, as it leads us one step closer to a united island. Mr. Shea Glasgow said that we're far beyond the stage where direct rule in a conventional sense is anyway acceptable to the Irish people of them. In the most poignant point, I think, of discussion, honorary life member, Mr. Kerry Gallagher, said we should scrap this for union with the UK. Or even any mention of Ireland, but instead we should form an allegiance with Norway. <laughs> a vote was then taken on the motion, which read five <coughs> Labour, 25 months and 15 abstentions. Mr. Glasgow also got a motion which proposed that the House should support the UCU strikes. Edmund Duffy said it was difficult due to the loss in tuition fees, but it meant if it meant the pensions of staff were protected, it was worthwhile. Mr. Hickman argued that it was not the place of trade unions to fight in the interests of future staff and employees, but just for their own. Mr. Matthew Bradley and counter Mr. Hickman's point, arguing that university is a unique institution, I mean, I think Queen's is a unique institution, where many of its students end up working for the institution, and thus they were well within their rights to strike for future staff. A vote was then taken on the motion, which had passed unanimously. The President decided that that was quite enough of private members and opened up the floor to present questions. After last week's assault from the House, I believe the President was feeling fairly apprehensive, but alas, it was honorary life member Mr. Jonathan Finney who asked the first question. So the President was safe for the time being. He pondered why nobody ever addresses the House through the Chair as a safety in Article 10 of the Constitution. President responding, responded by saying that he tries so hard, as we all know. Um, and then started commenting on how well dressed Mr. Finney was to try and avoid the question. Mr. John McDonald then asked President if, if he'd seen it the last season of Geordie Shaw. And if he did, did he see the last episode which each of the contestants were asked to perform naughty acts on each other in a hot tub? And then, of course, somehow linked this question to Kim Kardashian. I mean, I think, that, I think it's fair to say that none of us in the house can quite imagine our esteemed president lounging on the sofa with the lads, with Tim's the special group, watching Geordie Shaw. So he stopped up to our treasure and shouted, shame resigning in triumph. <laughs> Mr. Edmund Duffy then confirmed that he was the youngest member of the house. And... <laughs> I was kind of hoping you'd have left that out. <laughs> I was like, you'd probably complain if I didn't, so I thought of it. And only that time, but Mr. Yuletta asked another Kardashian question. Finally, the President introduced the motion that this House would be in an open relationship 
and took a vote on Ferrari opinion, which read 9 in favour, 22 against, and 13 abstentions. Opening the case of the proposition was made in speaker Mr. Robert Clark. He started with a quote saying that one is the loneliest member. So profound, Bobby. He clearly defined the motion, which set out the distinction between an open relationship and a polyamorous relationship. He then professed that he had a girlfriend. I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure if he was looking to be congratulated on it, but there is. But then proceeded to plunge his relationship into the dark depths of danger. <laughs> after, after stating that she might want to have some baguette. <laughs> Opening up the opposition, there was another major speaker, Mr. Hammond defeat. We were sure that House, the opposition, weren't against experimentation, but that sexual experimentation was best found for a monogamous relationship. He stated that we are an advanced species. Somewhat contestable, considering the makeup of our house, but there we are. <laughs> In conclusion, he stated that we should encourage solutions for couples to stay faithful, rather than encourage open relationships. Continue the argument for the proposition was our training officer and honorary life member in his study letter, during which the press restrained me from leaving the room in fear of the verbal assault which was to come. She started to speech however in a respectful and tactful manner, by emphasising the point that open relationships are consensual, healthy, and stem from open discussion with the other partner, but then swiftly moved on to hardcore BSM. <laughs> In conclusion, she argued that times and attitudes are changing, and thus pleaded to the House to vote for the proposition. I love you. <laughs> In the second round of couples counselling, Miss <laughs> Kara Swale, the suitably annoyed girlfriend, who was justifiably embarrassed. She focused on the potential ramifications of and the individual's sexual health, citing the great potential risk of having multiple partners. She ended up her argument by stating that an open relationship would exacerbate tension within that relationship, foster jealousy, and make trust even more difficult. Rounding up the proposition was our social offer, officer and current member of the Leatherific, Mr. Connor Neal. After spending a minute saying that he was going to say things, he In response to the opposition, claiming that being in an open relationship is animalistic, he entertained the house by turning around and doing an Elvis hound dog thing. To conclude, he argued that this was down to two fair ideologies that monogamy and great matter. Concluding the debate was Mr. Jonathan Finley HLM, who played the most poignant point in the debate which were few and far between, I think it's fair to say, was that the motion made people feel embarrassed, as he argued, it's social taboo. He compared no relationship to trusting someone not to steal all your things, and then just to give them all your belongings. <laughs> the outcome, he argued, will be the same. Thus, he appealed to the House to value something above their animalistic hound dog desires and bones of A short round of questions was had, but the house said for Miss Christine Fleming, Miss Grammy Graham, and Miss Leia Rosvani. A vote was then taken on speakability, which read 18th of Britain, 12th of Britain, and 12th of Britain. Make it a mixture.
referred to our social officer as being a man with a letter. He shook his head in disagreement. Just moments before, if you've been listening really closely, you might just have heard the sound of a cold can crack. <laughs> Also, this is going to be really big, and I apologise. Um, but the person sitting between Mary Kate and Mr. Bryson, stop it! Stop it! I know what you're doing. Stop it! You're going to, you're going to get me killed. Uh, I I cannot. Do do no, no, do do this this thing here, which again I don't want to specify. I do not want to go into any more detail because I will, I will die. I will literally die. Um, I will tell you afterwards what, what this woman has done. Um, it is dreadful and very, very dangerous. Um, know the, the risk of the fire that you're playing with. Anyway, private member's business, is there any? Go. Uh, I will start with Mr. John McCann. Thank you very much. A true evil has replaced this, this entire world as a player. Here we go. You've got an update on where I think it's not going to say who <laughs> that word. Okay. I'm going to propose a new motion of the house. This house would repeal the Snapchat update. Oh. <laughs> I'm looking at how many opinions on They've already released a statement saying they are going to remove it. They said they were. So, no, they did. They said they were. <laughs> so one of you is fake news. Which one of you is Exactly, John. I mean, check, because they've definitely released a statement saying they're going to remove it. On a more general note, what, are there any opinions on the Snapchat update feature? Why is it so awful? Someone please tell me. Uh, Mr. Beckett? It's awful because we're talking about it at all, and it shows the death of our society in every single way. I am Mr. McDonald. Okay, okay. Yes, uh, point of clarification. Point of clarification, I'm just reading a headline here. Snap, um, the last 21 hours, Snap tells the 1.2 million who signed a petition to remove the Snapchat update that they're out of luck. It's still happening, folks. Ooh, that must be a terrible thing for some people. <laughs> <laughs> I assume. Um, Mr. Man. Long may the new Snapchat update rain. <laughs> For you see, the outrage that spawns from it is utterly hilarious, and I wish to read it for many years to come. <laughs> I have an iPhone 4S, which is actually too old to receive. Yep, that's so simple. We simply go backwards in time. Do this old technology, and the Snapchat update is therefore redundant. <laughs> So I think people should just get a life and do things. Here, then made that 
We're going to make that a big feature, lads. <laughs> Nobody wants Snapchat to be about the crap you decide to click away from on your Facebook. <laughs> That's what they've done. They've replaced your friends' stories with the capitalism and news networks that get to brainwash us. And QUBS news stories. And QUBS news. Yeah. So, I am triggered! <laughs> Really, the incompetence shown in designing it. Russell's my Jimmy. Just a bit of quality here, seriously. <laughs> when, when, when we talk about the societal changes, and they're rightfully so, think about the news. <laughs> Must stop coming, must stop coming. My lives in Sweden. Must stop coming, must stop coming. I think a related, but I think much more serious problem. Okay. Okay, I'm I'm prepared for this. Is like, if anybody hasn't bothered to update any of their apps that are made by Facebook, so WhatsApp, the Facebook app, Facebook Messenger, etc, etc. You might have noticed recently that every time you use them now, a message pops up saying, your app is out of date and will soon stop working. Please update this app, or something to that effect. What this means is that Facebook has to force you to update this app programmed in a kill switch into all of their apps <laughs> so that if it gets too out of date, they'll make it stop working. So that even if you don't want their update, which don't have change logs, because then they'd have to tell you what all the spyware they're adding, <laughs> not only if you don't want those, well, you're out of luck. You have to. Why is this a thing that they're doing? Sounds dreadfully dastardly. Uh, I'll take one final point for Mr. Karen. I think we're all being too harsh on the updates. I agree with Mr. I believe it keeps us up to date on very important news that I believe everyone in the house is Stormy Jenner, newest member of the Kardashians. <laughs> Snapchat update, please raise your hand and say, ah! 
To maybe stop, but uh, from picking it up. I mean, no, it's closer.
Take three guesses where I'll be putting all of mine. <laughs> also, in, in a shameless act of self-promotion, uh, seeing as I'm just doing this now, apparently, um, I'm completely imputing the honor of this robe. I'm selfless. Uh, what? What? If, no, <laughs> that was provided by the union, so no. Uh, if, if I win, uh, first uh, the bit of the 170 drinks are on me afterwards. Uh, so that should be a pretty good setup. Uh, so I. Hi! Yeah! All I was going to say is I think he's a bit of a fruit, really, but he kind of killed it by the whole fruit. Fruit cake, fruit cake, I'll take that. Right. Um. Firstly, uh, thank you for giving me more work out of the recording to cut all of that out. <laughs> and, and secondly... Let's be honest, they don't listen. Okay. And, and secondly, if you win, can they invalidate your election so I can pretend to be you again? Yeah! They'll probably find a way. I mean, I don't doubt it. Um, on a minor point of order, Mr. President, I would like to add a second motion to my point, which is replace the SU's motto with they don't listen, they don't care. <laughs> Flashing me on that is we stuck. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, I think that'll. Uh, Mr. Rasparian. <laughs> By the way, this will probably constitute precious questions that we've been so. Have you actually betrayed us, or are you trying to bring the student union down from within? What part of the set on fire? Did you not understand? <laughs> I mean, again, I have to keep talking out of the corner of my mouth. I thought you were here set on fire, But yes, anyone else going on? This person? Um, can you remind the house to also vote for Maria McQuillan? Yes, uh, uh, yes, I can't, yes, are you going to say what I think you're going to say? Yeah. Go. Can I remind the house that we aren't endorsing anyone because we're not allowed to endorse well, anyone, so don't listen no, to anyone yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what this motion is, to okay, endorse well, So, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I, I personally yes. would urge you all to vote for Miss Mar 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 yeah, Maria McQuillan, who is not really trying to uh, I don't care, it's the issue. Uh, <laughs> I don't owe them any neutrality. Uh, also, uh, might as well, seeing as I believe she's here. Cat Rafferty, are you still here? Cat Rafferty, stand up, no, she gone? She gone. Ah, uh, well, then she gets to jump with Uh, but yes, uh, Mary McCullough for education, that would be good. Uh, final points? No, that's gone once, gone twice, okay. Yeah, the motion was this house would support Helen Black in his candidature for the postgraduate. Can I get a seconder? Seconded. All those in favour, please raise your hand and say aye. Aye. Uh, all those against it, no? No. Okay. And then you've lost. Okay, so. Nays? Two? Yeah, two nays. Any other nays? Any abstentions? Three abstentions? Okay, so we can figure out the rest. Because that was. Thank you very much. Uh, second motion. Second motion? Yes, but Sal's replaced the SU problem with they don't listen, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, as chair of this meeting, I refuse to let that one come forward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> I do actually have to leave, this is just going to be oh, okay. and, and, and loving memory of Mr. Russell Lang, can I get a second there for replacing the SU's? Uh, or maybe that you want to say, listen, I don't care. All those in favor, John, say aye! Aye! Against, say aye!
of four, five men's and the rest ice. So that'll teach them. Uh, right. I don't know for private members' business. I'm afraid uh, that will also do president's questions. On, on, on that point, I think you'd be coming like a disrepute to your office if you were to open a formal round of presidents' questions. And you can bet your bottom dollar that I'm not taking it from them. Mr. Clark. As was discussed earlier, you were running for. Oh, the postgraduate. If a Kardashian. Whose primary business is in the sale of pharmaceuticals and harm, 
They threatened to stop selling life-saving cancer medications to patients in Spain. And almost, well, they tried to destroy their supply of those drugs just so they could win the negotiations. If that example of the harm pharma companies can do wasn't enough to make at least a wee bit angry, this one's probably going to do it. In 2013, a pharma company called Valiant Pharmaceuticals, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right, purchased the drug calcium disodium uh, for Senate. Yeah, that's about right, maybe. Yeah. And increased the price of a five day course of the drug from $950 to $27,000. Now, interestingly, you're thinking at this point, why should I care about the price increase for a drug? that probably only five people in the world really need anyway, or that maybe whenever they bought it, they find that these treat a whole range of other diseases and then increase the value. Neither of that's true, and I really hate that fact, but yeah. Calcium disodium uh, for Senate uh, is used to treat lead poisoning, and the event in 2013 that made it worth so much more was the Flint, Michigan incident of mass lead poisoning. Oh, this is going to have to be fast. <laughs> uh, with, uh, this means that at some point, someone at this company heard that a city of nearly 100,000 people had a massive outbreak of lead in their drinking water, and the response was to buy the drug for treating lead poisoning and increase the price by 2,700% meaning that there are men, women, and children who can't afford to get treatment for being poisoned. In conclusion, pharma companies have spent far more money telling you about their drugs than they have on making them work. On that point. Right. Right back in time. <laughs> they use their monopolies and life-saving drugs to bend governments over a barrel to increase their profits, and they exploit tragedies with massive price hikes to squeeze as much money as they can out of the situation. Researching and writing a story has destroyed my faith in humanity to a very particular level. So, all I can do now is ask you to vote with the proposition. disagreeing that the, some of the examples you gave were terrible and there are other terrible examples. However, saying that Big Farm has done more harm than good is a massive over-exaggeration, I, I believe. Um, yeah, the, the good done and the life-saving therapies that have been developed and that have become available due to big pharmaceutical companies that would not exist without them far outweighs the harm that has been given. Yes. 
those, many of those treatments are revolutionary, but they're developed by small bioware firms and by political groups, and then bought by the big farmer. Big farmer merely distributes. Okay, right. I'm, I'm actually going to get on to that, but yes, a lot of the initial discovery and development of new pharmaceuticals is carried out by small um, companies. A lot happens in academia. However, small spin-off companies or academia do not have the funds to take these compounds through clinical trials to approval and to be available to patients. If there were not big companies, then yes, we could have compounds that are going to cure cancer, compounds that are going to cure AIDS. They're, they're just going to be compounds in a lab. They're, they're not going to get through trials. There's not the funding for that. Um, and that's why big pharmaceutical companies, they, um, they um, outsource a lot of the initial development steps because that's something that academia is so good at. Um, there are a lot of small labs which can follow a lot of more leads than the big companies would be capable of doing. As well as that, I would say that a lot, as, as someone in medicinal chemistry, and a lot of people I know in medicinal chemistry, their end goal is to work for the pharmaceutical industry, to work in research and development for the pharmaceutical industry. So I don't fully buy that the pharmaceutical industry isn't doing research because a lot of researchers are going to work for it. Um, one small point of rebuttal, I actually want to make to yours. Um, you talked about the um, HIV, cheaper generic HIV drugs to, um, from India. So India's patent laws are different and basically they don't have to obey the US patent laws. Those drugs are cheaper because they're able to rip off the work done by other companies and don't have to cover any of the R&D costs, which is why they can cut the prices down so much. And the companies doing that are still making huge, huge profits because they don't have to invest in R&D. And so I'm going to just very quickly take you through the um, drug discovery pipeline. And kind of illustrate why there are so many costs. So to um, bring a new and to bring a new um, therapy, um, you have the initial discovery. And usually it starts off with um, thousands and thousands of compounds. And you're looking for something that's going to hit your target. You're looking, then you want something with the correct properties that it will get to the target once it is administered. You need something that can be formulated into your drug. You need something that's going to have the correct duration of action. And you need something that's not going to hit any other targets so you're not going to get a lot of horrendous side effects. Um, then it needs to be developed to be scaled up. There's no point um, making this wonder compound whenever it takes three scientists five weeks to make two milligrams. Um, you need to be able to make it on an industrial scale. Um, once this usually will generate um, uh, about a few hundred um, these compounds for preclinical development to be taken forward in, into animal models to see that they're safe in a living system. Um, once drugs have passed through preclinical development, and this, this initial stage is what is um, usually outsourced to academia, and this stage can take up to 10 years. Um, after preclinical development, then we get the first in land studies. Um, so there are three levels of clinical trials that a compound must go through before it will reach uh, the eligible for, uh, for approval. Uh, so phase one trials are to see that it is safe for humans. 
and usually it is between 20 and 80 healthy volunteers and will be given drugs in very small and then increasing doses. Um, and these, these um, trials, um, um, yeah, so uh, phase one trials um, usually would be costing over $150 million. Uh, phase two trials then is starting to give your, your drug to actual patients, uh, usually um, in between two and 500 patients. Uh, phase two trials, um, usually an another two years, and a cost of $400 million. Then phase three trials, a larger cohort of patients, um, one to 5,000. Um, again, this would be up to $500 million. The cost to bring a new drug is, is on average about $2.9 billion. And big pharma companies, they have to cover the cost of that drug, but also one in 10 drugs makes it to approval. Less. For every drug that, every drug that is sold has to also cover the cost of every drug that fails. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I very briefly wanted to touch on that there are, there have been issues with pharmaceutical industry and a lot of them um, have, they have started to try and deal with. Um, with the issue with clinical trials being um, doctors, um, uh, companies have signed up to um, publish all trials data. Uh, for accessibility, a lot of companies now are looking into um, tiered royalty systems. So where the price they charge for your drug, for their drug, depends on the GDP of the country. Um, there's also um, increasing collaboration um, for things such as antibiotics, or um, a big one was for muscular dystrophy. Um, so very quickly to sum up, um, with Big Pharma, we would be relying on whatever your doctor could mix together in the back office. Many more people would die from diseases. We wouldn't have drugs being developed. So I urge you to vote with the opposition. when the average speech was about 10 minutes long and given by Finn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why she went so much over time. Uh, I would now uh, like to welcome and apologise as the other papers are incorrect once again. Uh, but yes, I'd like to welcome Mr. Ted Pye. I didn't hear that dude, how was it? I'm going to tackle two key issues in this week tonight. Firstly, I'm going to highlight the bad science rampant within fat pharma. And secondly, I'm going to analyse its detrimental effect on mental health treatment. It's worth noting that we, the proposition, are not condemning all doctors, pharmacists, or drug makers. In the vast majority of cases, these people do their jobs in good faith. Society as a whole recognises this. We have seen firsthand the wonders of modern medicine and what it can do for people. But if only it were as simple as good, wholesome doctors providing cures to their patients. Suppose you visit the doctor because you're suffering from bouts of depression. You take the drugs from your doctor because you have faith in medical science. You believe it will cure you. 
you follow the dose of recommendations, say, one pill four times a day. You start to feel a little funny because of the side effects of the drugs. But you believe the pills are working because they're clearly doing something. Like, they must be curing my depression because I'm also getting erectile dysfunction that the doctor said I get. So, well, if your doctor had prescribed you one of the 20 million Prozac prescriptions given out every year in the UK to treat your depression, there was only a minor chance that it was curing you at all. Eli Lilly, the manufacturer of the drug Prozac, has conceded in internal memos that there is only statistical correlation that Prozac alleviates depression. What this means is that a brisk walk, a chat with a friend, or some heroin would have been just as good. There are many cases where big pharma companies have promoted drugs that have turned out to be, at minimum, ineffective, and at most, deadly on that point, um, yeah. can you give us an example? I'm literally, literally, my <laughs> an antidepressant manufactured by Pfizer, is another prime example. Seven trials were done comparing Roboxidin to placebo sugar pill. Of those seven trials, one gave a positive result for Roboxidin, and that was published. But of the six trials that gave a negative result for Roboxidin, they went unpublished, left hidden from the eyes of doctors and patients. Imagine if I flipped the coin a hundred times, but withheld 50% of those results. I could make it look like I had a two-headed coin. But all it would mean is that I was a chancer and you were an idiot for letting me get away with it. The big pharma are the chancers and we are their idiots. Further to this, three trials were done comparing Roboxidin to other antidepressants, which gave positive results. But yet three times as much patient data collected through Roboxidin was worse than other antidepressants. This data, of course, went unpublished. Big Pharma's reasoning for doing this is plain to see, as outlined by First Off. What company would go out of their way after spending hundreds of millions to publish data that shows that their products don't work? This means doctors are left with a biased sample of studies to read. In the entire field of medicine, it is, it is estimated that half of all drug trials are buried. How are doctors able to write treatments that they know will work for the patients if they're only ever given half of the story, the good half? So not only are big pharma trying to make it look like drugs are effective, when the data suggests they're not, they're also willing to get doctors to stop using drugs that work for their own ineffective drugs. People fighting depression do anything to alleviate their illnesses. This is where Big Pharma does its biggest harm. It capitalizes on the pain of these vulnerable people for profit. Rather than relying on evidence-based research that we all believe they are doing, instead they are cherry-picking and twisting science to fit what suits. On that point, yep. it sort of sounds like you know, you're Sounds like a conspiracy theory here by Big Pharma. Like there's some secret guys, a lot of them would don't tell us that. Like, you know, without actually giving evidence to back up, this is actually happening. Well, I've just listed two drugs and all the trials that have. Um, but I know, look, I sound like a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but conspiracy theories exist because there's a small little bit of truth. And I'm not saying that the entirety, as I pretty much outlined, the entirety of Big Pharma are all out there just to get money from us. So you're the minority? Is. No, back in the no, no, no. Um, But in, in every conspiracy theory, there's a, there's a little bit of truth where that comes from. 
And what, what I'm saying is that these trials that we know they do, and that go unpublished, they're, they, it's, it's very selective. Very selective. So, um, further. This is where Big Pharma does its biggest harm. It capitalizes on the pain of these vulnerable people for profit. Rather than relying on the evidence-based research that we all believe they're doing, instead they are cherry-picking and twisting science to fit what suits. All to create a narrative that will trick doctors and keep shareholders happy. So, why has Big, Big Pharma done more harm than good? Their hijacking of the evidence-based research for medicine has meant that drugs hold no more weight than homeopathic remedies, working simply because we believe they do, and often with much worse side effects. This has had a real and tangible effect for those who suffer from mental health issues. The mass overprescription of drugs that only maybe work, but do come with severe side effects, is surely a contributor to the mental health epidemic we see in society today. I don't think we'll ever be able to truly measure the magnitude of their abuse of the system, given that we only have half of the story. But I can only imagine this big pharma has dug its claws into all corners of medicine. That is more than just mental health sufferers that have unknowingly been harmed. So I beg you to propose them. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, members of the opposition, fellow members of the opposition, members of the House, I am not here to argue that the big pharmaceutical companies are some saints, that they do not have the interest of profit, but to say that they have done more harm than good is simply wrong. It is a preposterous notion which I will be going against. Now, I want to refute a couple of the claims made by the members of the proposition before I continue. There is this idea that Big Pharma does not want to give cures, does not want to help out people. However, in 2013, the US Food and Drug Administration approved a cure for hepatitis C developed by Gilead Sciences, a big US company which had a similar drug which could have simply controlled hepatitis. As well as that, Marex and Glaxo both developed HPV vaccine, which was again FP, FDA approval. HPV is responsible for 20% of cancers. They could have simply gave people chemotherapy and made a fortune, but they made the morally right decision, and what they did is they gave a drug which cured people. So to say that Big Pharma is just in it for the profit and does not want to cure people is a blatant stereotype and a stereotype which we have to go against. Now, I have said that they are interested in profits, but too often we don't celebrate the achievements of the big pharmaceutical industries. Now, I want to take us again, as I'm very fond of doing, in a journey through time back to 1941, where it was discovered how the mass-produced penicillin by the Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer company. Now, why, why was this so important? D-Day happened two years later, 
Without the mass-produced penicillin, there would have been Point millions of patients. Yes. Yeah. We're talking about a wartime example of penicillin production, and if we look through the Gulf War, we all agree that antibiotics are important, but also those are government-subsidised contracts, which the profits are different, and also the research is predominantly academic. This is not just a big pharma marketing campaign. You're equating all the work to big pharma executives that's done actually on the ground for the better of humankind. These aren't, this Great isn't a fair that. comparison. I don't think I actually accepted the point, but um, <laughs> I will answer that in about a minute's time, okay? So if you just bear with me. And what was that? Um, Okay, what I was going to say is what was truly remarkable is they were the only company that was able to mass produce drugs. I'm not denying that Fleming did an incredible thing. He discovered penicillin. But without big pharmaceutical companies, we have no way at present of mass producing drugs. So, I mean, what are we going to do if we don't have the big pharmaceutical companies to mass produce them? Where are they going to come from? Because they get profits from mass producing the drugs, they automatically are interested in research and development in making more drugs, which betters and cures humanity. On that point, no. The second achievement I would like to discuss is more modern. I was um, flipping through an article of the European Pharmaceutical Review the other day, as I do from time to time. And, um, I read an article by a man called Alan Hillgrove. Now, Alan Hillgrove works for a German company called I'm going to pray the boss pronunciation of this. <laughs> Boyinger Inglem, which are one of the 20 biggest pharmaceutical firms in Europe. He was saying over the past 21 years, they have had a lot of bad rep. People say that pharmaceutical firms don't care. They don't want to improve their lives. However, he said his company has personally developed, um, over the past 21 years, uh, inhibitor apodis, which helps people with HIV and AIDS. Now, AIDS has been responsible for 35 million deaths worldwide. Without this inhibitor and other medicines like it developed by big pharmaceutical companies, you would have had millions more deaths. So the argument that Yeah. But most of the deaths that occur from AIDS are still uh, are in regions where that medication isn't going because it's not profitable for it to go because they can't afford pay for that medication, so they're still dying, whilst people in uh, Western countries can afford to pay for that medication, so they get it. I'm well acknowledged that those countries are very poor, however, to say that as a problem just of the big pharmaceutical agencies is ridiculous. That's a worldwide problem that needs to be dealt with in other manners. Of course, the work of pharmaceutical agencies, they can't undercut their prices, because if they did, they could not invest in more research and development to develop new drugs to help people around the world. Okay. Um, um, aside from that, she's an awful fan of um, Yes, aside from the medical advantages of having big pharmaceutical companies, you also get economic advantages as well. Now, there's a bit of a myth that big pharma is US only, that the US predominantly benefits from it. The US makes 22.5 billion every year from exports by big pharmaceutical companies. There are bigger, there are smaller countries which make more: Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, France, and actually the Republic of Ireland makes 19.8 billion, with 6.2% of the market share of its pharmaceutical exports. This here provides thousands of jobs in Ireland, and it provides millions across the globe. So to say that pharmaceutical companies don't help 
in economic ways, it's just insanity. And I'm just going to conclude here by saying that the drug pharmaceutical industry is necessary. We need the drugs produced. There is no one else providing the service. Yes, there are things that happen which are tragedies. I will acknowledge there are tragedies happen. However, the industry isn't perfect. It is in it for profit, yes, but the alternative is so much worse. This is an industry that ultimately serves the many, and unfortunately for the few, it's not great at serving, but to say that it is, does more harm than good is just illogical. And uh, just before the next speaker gives his speech, he puts to bed a, a crumpled, very suspicious looking piece of paper was thrust into my hand. It had a, what appeared to be a Shutterstock logo at the bottom, and yet uh, it also appeared to be a PhD uh, conferring the title of Doctor to our next speaker. So I very skeptically welcome Doctor James Beckett. President, Secretary, ladies and gentlemen of the House, my venerable compadres, lizard people. <laughs> I have here on my hands my doctorate in nuclear engineering, which shows what happens when you ask for a trained salesman to get you a medical degree at quarter past six in the evening. <laughs> so, to begin with, I would like to deal with obviously the points that have been made tonight, which are great, venerable points, but I should point out that the opposition have a very unfair advantage because they have been drugging our water for years and it's very hard for us to make up our own minds. But let's, let's take the first point from the proposition itself, the financial cost of these, these clinical drugs. What do they cost? Well, we're, we're dealing with a pensions dispute right now. And every single financial oddman that has looked at university costs has said that universities can afford to pay pensions. If you're in the humanities, you know that your degree money is funding the sciences. We have the money for this. We put in thousands of pounds as students for the money for this. The same is true in America. Big Pharma comes along and buys up cheap research. It's not real. It's a dream. And they want to sell on for profit what is made by individuals. Who excellent individuals. And this, uh, another example of this is Addy, when we talk about bad science. Addy is the female Viagra. It was made by a small biotech firm, and then it was bought up by a large biotech company. On that point, how was that drug going to be distributed if it wasn't bought up by Big Pharma? Was that little company just okay. going to distribute it nationwide? Well, the thing is, it shouldn't be, because Addy was tested on 80 people, and as a female Viagra drug, it was tested on 75 men and 5 women. Of those 5 women, they experienced blackouts. And while trying to sell it, it turned out that if you drank alcohol, this sexual experimentation drug functioned as a date rape drug. Big Pharma still wanted to sell it because of course they did. Because it's profit. That's all they care about. On that point? Yes. Okay, what's the difference between that and, say, Tesco sending you cake, which is clearly not healthy for you, and yet we still bought it in droves last week? I completely agree that the difference is cake doesn't lead to, you know, rape. <laughs> <laughs> 
good. You don't look back through history and look at the black death and say, oh god, I wish Pete Farmer was here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if Pete Farmer were there with some form of um, anti-parasitic, less people would have died. Well, then we should be inventing time travel, not preventing <laughs> Big Pharma patterns people's genetic coding. It takes ideas that should be for the free market. When you look at things like the internet, the best things ever existed, they're things that were given freely to the people. The idea of even antibiotics, which I'll admit are an amazing thing disseminated by Big Pharma, and yet they're disseminated to such an extent for profit that they're, they're becoming non-effective because they want to prescribe it for everything, because they want to sell something. When we look at HIV medication, we look at the fact that Africa is in the middle of an epidemic, but they can't afford the drugs. These are cheap drugs. An interesting comparison is snake venom. The current snake venom antidote is 98% effective. No one is making it anymore because it's not profitable. So future snake bite victims will have to deal with inferior drugs and <coughs> It is profit, not person. And I agree with you that they are oh, person. I think just like, without getting into an ideological debate, just like any, we can have this debate about the capital, the, the free trade market, um, and it's do's or don'ts, but whenever it comes down to it, these companies operate on the profit, but what makes profit? It's competition, it's good product. They don't make bad products for the product. Yeah, so, so, no, I, I completely agree. But you're talking about a monopoly system. You argue that Big Pharma is not an American term, but we are talking about an American term. The original reason Big Pharma came about as an idea is the idea of pharmaceutical lobbies in the USA. And you're talking about, it, it, would anyone here gladly support the NRA because they're a large profit, profit organization who lobby, lobbies the US government? Of course not. These companies do harm. They restrict research. They restrict us. When you're talking about finances and our futures, when you're talking about birth rates or drugs prescribed to women under cesarean, even if we're talking about opioids, for example, an excellent example of painkillers, opioids during the 1970s were considered too dangerous for public consumption. But that's not profitable. So the pharmaceutical companies went on a big campaign that everyone should have opioids, and now America is dragged into an opioid crisis. People oh, will break their own arms just to get opioids. Yes. Well, obviously I'm going to concede that the opioid crisis is really, really bad. Surely an outright ban of all opioids is still a bad thing, because it means that people can't have morphine if they're in terrible, terrible pain. I agree, I agree. Because that, that's a sensible precaution. If you have a serious injury, you get morphine. But that's not how things have worked out. The argument is we can produce opioids, people will pay for opioids, therefore we should sell opioids. This is the ideology of the drug dealer you see on the corner. Except the drug dealer knows you and has some form of ethics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but the truth is that this big harm debate. No one's denying that medicine is good, no one's denying that the expansion of our medical knowledge is good. But I, as a person with a doctorate, <laughs> must tell you, must tell you, that education and medication should be free. And they should be freely available. When we look at the healthcare crisis in America, 
more America than Europe, we're looking at up pricing for insurance companies. And when we look at the medication uh, crisis in America, we're looking at the up pricing of medication. The ethical thing to do, as somebody would is to support the proposition. Thank you. Dr. Speckett. Uh, and now, uh, to uh, just in case of the opposition and indeed the bit, please give a warm welcome to Mr. Evan Dunning. Stand up all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear you might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no rights. Here, here. Welcome, welcome to somehow debating. Welcome to socialism, saying that capitalism is good. Why am I on this side? Uh, now, the first prop said about using a scalpel approach. However, I believe that as my partner said, oh, hang on a minute, I'm reading the Irish Times on your final. Sorry. <laughs> now, the first prop in this debate, oh, uh, Mr. President, Mr. Secretary, all speakers, the House, her match, as we like to call it. Um, sorry, I have one back over there. Uh, first prop, what did first prop say? First prop spoke about marketing. He spoke about Johnson Johnson. Am I right in saying that's a terrible name for a company? You know, what's their name? Dunn and Black. There's a the name immediately. Feel free to begin your speech at any time. Anyway, it spoke about the marketing of Johnson Johnson and Pfizer. Point of information. We sit fire again. No! We sit fire again. I'm not I'm not sure I caught it. What? I'm really going to skip that if you don't get on. We're about the points. Get going. <laughs> so, first speaker spoke about Johnson Johnson and Pfizer and about the, their um, extravagant expenses on marketing. And he also spoke about drugs that become a private business and the fact that they all cost too much. But this is not a problem of big pharma. This is a problem of capitalism. And ultimately, if he's arguing that we should uh, not support big pharma and we should argue against these ideas of privatisation and things and things being made for profits and large amounts of marketing, we're going to have to fight every single company of capitalism in the world. I'd suggest starting with McDonald's, but ultimately this is not viable and this is not feasible. He spoke about um, issues on buying out Congress. Um, so there's a great scene actually regarding this in Michael Moore's sicko. Um, which I know, I'll get onto him later. However, this is that America is one country in the world, and to quote uh, the Lord himself, Stephen Patrick Morrissey, America is not the world. And there are more countries in the world than America, and it's difficult to just focus on this one place. The world is 300 nations, and there are loads of places where that's all made not a fire problem. Fire! Order! In the house, please! <coughs> Then he 
spoke about the lead poisoning um, caused by the poisoning of the water in Flint, Michigan. Now, I agree this is an issue. However, that meant that we almost killed Michael Moore, and we finally didn't have to listen to his useless documentaries. <laughs> Second proposition. So, if you can make jokes about being a doctor, I can make jokes about this sort of thing. <laughs> Second proposition mentioned Prozac. And as Dr. Damon Albarn once said, you read it with a bit of Balzac, and it's the century's remedy. <laughs> what? There was what? what? Tomorrow, and I'm and I, I'm hardly thinking about this right now. I'm thinking more. <laughs> we can tell. <laughs> Just quit, man. <laughs> 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 uh, second proposition about hiding the truth and the idea that that's what a lot of drug companies do. However, going back to the earlier point, what company in the world does not hide the truth? If we're going to change. The hiding of the truth in Big Pharma, we're going to have to hide, prevent the hiding of the truth in every company. On that point. <laughs> yes, Mr. Sullivan, go on. Give so, me some time. <laughs> what your speech seems to be saying, your main point, it seems to be all the other companies. All the other companies are really bad. So that means Big Pharma's badness isn't actually bad. No. Surely that doesn't surely every other company being evil. The whole is not mutually exclusive with Big Pharma being evil. <laughs> what I'm saying is that every company is evil, effectively. But, uh, you know, and that also leads to the uh, second cross point about capitalizing on vulnerable people. Can you tell that this is kind of like someone sort of waking up naked in their maths exam? <laughs> In which, uh, on about McDonald's and about one of the guys from Mythbusters going to McDonald's, blah, 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 he said, So, are you being paid by the company that you are conducting an invest independent investigation for to conduct that independent investigation? The idea of hijacking research is completely not true. I completely ran out of time. <laughs> Maybe I should spend a couple of time making stuff up. <laughs> And let's just talk about the own points and watch me speed round this. Okay, as was said by the first opposition, Big Pharma is definitely not perfect. However, this motion is clearly a massive over-exaggeration of what is actually true. Uh, as was said, there is very much a danger of untested, untested and unlikely drugs. This can be very much linked to the e-generation of the sort of late 80s and early 90s in the UK, in which several young people died because of the danger of unlicensed and un not tested drugs that weren't tested properly. Also, the only real sustainable way to have the funding to, conduct, to make as many new drugs as possible is through business. And ultimately, no, that's another point, that's a rubbish point, that's a rubbish point as <laughs> well. <laughs> the only way to make pharmaceutical production on the industrial scale is through Big Pharma. Uh, there's a myth of not wanting to help. And 
let's be honest, hepatitis is hepatitis. <laughs> hepatitis is a very dangerous drug. <laughs> <laughs> Humanity is the story of progression, and we can exist without big farm without that many problems, considering the fact that research is done actually in our backyard when you look at Queens. So, thank you very much, Mr. Beggar. Here from the Alpacare Farm. Yes, you go ahead. Yeah, so yes, research is done um, right beside us. Um, yes, I have a people doing that research. Um, but to take a drug in, through human trials, 
small companies can't finance it. You, the, you need big pharma companies because they have to be big enough to absorb the cost of a failed drug. Um, small companies, you know, if a drug gets to the final stage of clinical trials and you've, you've invested billions of dollars already and then it turns out it's actually not really, it's not really effective in most patients, then just the company is gone, everything is lost, big pharma can absorb that and kind of continue because they've got multiple pathways going. So yeah, that's kind of why we need this. Thank you very much, Mr. Swelling. Are there any questions tonight from the opposition? Uh, Mr. Um, so, sort of building on that, um, government can fund the costs. It, before we had the NHS, it was said that private uh, healthcare companies, private provision of health in America, private provision of health is the only ones that can fund the costs. But no, the government and state can fund the costs of research and covering drug trials like they would in other public sectors. We can't have the NHS and say that healthcare should be uh, publicly owned and the profit should be removed when we're sending vast amounts of our money in profits abroad to these companies. Thank you very much. Uh, who from the opposition would care to take that point? <coughs> governments are going to have the money to fund the costs, as well as that I suppose one of the things with drug companies is they're so multinational. So I don't know, are you saying like just all governments should fund all costs for all clinical trials, which I, I just don't think is feasible. Um, that answers. Thank you, Mr. Uh, from the profit care to respond, Mr. Becker. I agree with the opposition. Clearly, governments can't afford anything, and <laughs> totally in their own areas, and don't uh, don't integrate with the wider community at all. Thank you. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, the, 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 <laughs> okay, just just very simply, look, I I actually do take the point from the proposition. Is incredibly hard to self-fund, but we know that through education, that's why we pour money into universities. I also accept the point of kind of funding failed drugs, but the fact is, if you equate the medical community to the military community, which is a similar profit margin, the military produces weapons and soldiers and we pass it on to private military companies. This is an accepted practice. We pass on weapons testing. If you look at the American jets that just didn't fly, states do absorb costs. To, uh, to say that they don't is just denial of reality. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Beck. Are there any uh, points now abstaining in the motion? Points that can be directed equally to both sides? No? No abstaining points? Going once, going twice? Okay. Are there any questions then for the proposition? This side here. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, it's been raised a number of times about the possibility of the, the funding coming from governmental level, and I agree that that is great uh, and it's a possibility. But I think this, one of the problems that people have with capitalism, and as I said in my previous conference, we're not getting into the ideologies, but it is about the money and money talks. And if we talk about Queen's specifically being a research based university, at the minute, you're talking about strikes because the government has refused 
to pair these people who are now in these research teams and their research is being affected by government top-down. This doesn't happen in these private sectors because it's profit-driven and there aren't these factors which is why it's so efficient. And so I would like to propose that point against your speech. Thank you very much, Mr. O'Neill. Here from the Protestant Federalist Bond, Mr. Jack. To the exception of technical, UCD are on strike, not because of the government, but because the university administration are cutting funding for them. Ignore that. Government is the best alternative to Big Pharma. Yes, there are significant issues which will have to be addressed if that ever goes forward. But the point put forward by the opposition that the only alternative to Big Pharma is small pharma isn't really valid at this point. Yes, you've heard that several times. <laughs> but shock at this point. I have a Government is the best alternative, at least from my point of view. Yeah, because government will always fund research, hopefully, in the best interest of people, whereas pharmaceutical companies will fund research in the best interest of profit. There is more money in the little blue pill that helps the secretary than, <laughs> than there will be than there is in treating malaria because only poor people get malaria. Thank you very much, Mr. Patton. My question is, how do you know that the secretary takes that little blue pill? Yeah, how do you know? Last week's speeches. You're automatically assuming here that government conducts research just for the sake of research. You know, no research is conducted without a certain degree of profit being involved inside of it. You know, the idea of profit, and that is where Big Pharma has the advantage. You know, it conducts research, it makes profit, and then it's profit, it funds back in more research to make more profit. It's a sort of loop that Big Pharma is in, which ultimately leads to more cures being developed. So without it, I mean, you're suggesting government as an alternative, yet governments have shown absolutely no desire whatsoever so far to look for an alternative. So like, you cannot actually suggest a feasible alternative to Big Pharma. So if we just get rid of Big Pharma, you will have far more harm than good done. Thank you very much, Mr. Starr. Uh, are there any questions now for the opposition? No, no questions for the opposition? This will be a very short round of questions indeed. saying that hepatitis is a drug.
through the NHS bargaining, through the fact that we can control our own systems, and through small research groups, her hepatitis was cured. It's, in, it's incredibly important. Like, it really does. It, it really makes a difference to people's lives. Big Pharma wants to rise that price. Like, in the US, it's $80,000 for the treatment my mother received. In the UK, it's fifteen dollars on the NHS. So expensive but you can see the mark down versus the mark up. Big Pharma does harm. If I was in the US and at the cause, uh, at the disposal of Big Pharma, my mother would be dead today. And I don't say that lightly, I mean it. I owe everything to the NHS. Big Pharma does more harm than good. It would see people dead. It would see people without cancer medication. It would see people in Africa without AIDS medication. That is the research out there. And when we look at these capitalist arguments, it's because we can see the end of the world before we can see the end of capitalism. That is simply not true. And while I am not a socialist at all, <laughs> there is a future in socialism, and that's how we should progress as a society, together, as people and as humans. And that is the best anti-Fig Farmer argument I can think of. That was a classic example of when uh, the tone of a question and answer just completely <laughs> passed each other by. Uh, I was also, final response from the opposition? Or should that be? Um, okay, so you spoke about your mother, and it's a very sad story. Um, it's a sad story about my mother. So, um, my mother has a very uh, disease called Schleroderma, which most, most of not all of you have never heard of. And um, actually has a very similar problem, it's, that it's very difficult to get drugs for it. And the main issue is actually the fact that there isn't enough funding in the NHS for this um, disease, that there are drugs readily available. This means that my mum actually has to rely on big pharmaceutical companies in order to get her drugs imported from America so that she can keep alive and continue to stay alive. So therefore, I think the idea that we need some sort of socialist revolution is, com <laughs> is complete nonsense and... Uh, but I believe that this argument about we need a socialist revolution to ensure that these companies are gone forever ignores the fact that these companies do help a lot of people, especially those in countries where certain things, even in this, even in this privileged world that we live in, where there isn't enough state funding for certain diseases, and I think we need to remember that. Thank you very much, Mr. Jeffrey. Thank you very much to our speakers on each side and thank you very much to the floor. Uh, this is the point of the evening when you wrestle about for your membership cards. So just to remind you, the Irish Times finally tomorrow evening in the Riddle Hall of Stramellis. Please, please, please do come along. <laughs>
for the debate starts at seven. Uh, it's likely to be, uh, if not well over capacity, at capacity quite safely. So if you want to ensure a seat, be a good idea to get there about quarter to seven at the latest. Uh, again, if you, if you don't know where the Riddle Hall is, uh, you can just Google it. It's R I D D E L. Uh, all uh, so yes, you can find the location for anything. Like I said, just at the end of the or whatever the exact road name is. Pardon? Yes, have we all got our cards? Good. Right, this is about unspeakability. If you believe that the proposition spoke best this evening, please raise your hand and say aye! Aye! Keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all those who believe that the opposition spoke best this evening, please raise your hand and say nay! Nay! <laughs> <laughs> Can I two? Did you get two? It's okay. Yeah, you got one. Uh, 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 the queen voted no. The queen voted no. I saw it. It's like And all those who believe both sides go equally well, equally carefully, or wish to express no opinion on the matter whatsoever, please raise your hand and say it loud, say it proud, say man. Or, or don't. Or whisper it quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I count three, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Secretary, please read back the vote. Mr. President, that was 20 all votes for the proposition. Two for the opposition. Here we go. The proposition has it. The proposition has it. <laughs> the time is just after 20 past nine. I do hereby declare this meeting.